It's time for another Bortscast. Okay, everybody, it's Tuesday morning. Good day. Another award, wi- I wish, award-winning Bortscast on the way. And first of all, uh, because the subscriptions to the Bortscast are now going to be financing Donna's home care for as long as she needs it, and I hope it's not long. But anyway, an update on my queen. She has turned into a freaking therapist. No, I'm, I'm not kidding. Last night was her 14th night at the rehab hospital, Shepherd Center, one of the 10 best hospitals in America and the best rehab hospital out there. And for meals, if you don't want the meal in your room or if you don't want to go down to the cafeteria, and we do that quite frequently, uh, but for meals, you go into the therapy gym. There's two distinct parts to this, to this uh, rehabilitation hospital. There's the ABI unit that's acquired brain injury. That is for strokes, basically, people who've had strokes or brain injuries resulting from accidents, from automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents, and whatnot. And then the other unit is the unit where they treat spinal cord injuries. This is usually where you are crippled to one degree or another by an accident that involves your spinal cord. Donna is in the acquired brain injury unit. Uh, Many of the people there uh, are suffering from strokes. And again, I guess the subarachnoid hemorrhage that Donna uh, had on May the 9th can be and is by some people called a stroke, uh, but it is actually more of a brain bleed. Very, very often fatal, but once you get past that point, uh, that point and get past the danger area for vasoconstrictions, then you're on your way to a 100% recovery. So you go into the therapy gym for the acquired ba- a brain injury unit, and at the tables in there, that's where you have your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner, and you're interacting with the other patients. So now... I usually try to leave Donna alone in there, but when I am sitting with her in there, I find her talking to other patients about their injuries, and there she is counseling them. It's it's just her nature. Again, scheduled uh, scheduled for discharge one week from tomorrow. So one week from tonight, we will be staying in the ADL suite. Now, this is pretty interesting, and I just found out about it in the last couple of days. The uh, assisted daily living suite, Uh, Donna and I, and I've been with her pretty much every night, and last night was the 50th night being hospitalized with uh, with this event, and I've been with her all but about four of those nights, and that was during a period of time when she was transitioning from the ICU at Emory Hospital to the rehabilitation hospital which, by the way, is Shepherd, Shepherd Center. And when she was making that transition to the regular room in Emory, there wasn't any place for me to sleep. So I came home and didn't sleep because I wasn't with her. But at any rate, that last night we will go to the ADL suite, Assisted Daily Living. Uh, I will be there. My daughter will be there. And Donna will be there. It has a kitchenette. I think I told you all of this. A kitchenette, dining room, bathroom with a tub, the whole routine. 
and they will monitor us as we live with Donna that night as if we were back home. She's walking like a champ. In fact, she just wanders all over the ABI unit uh, talking to nurses and other patients. We have her outside all the time. I'm going to get what they call a push pass. Now I'll be able to take her outside of the hospital and push her down the street uh, to have dinner at one of the many restaurants that are nearby. She's progressing that fast. Okay, now, can we get down to some of the issues of the day? First of all, am I actually going to give Michelle Obama a pass here? I'm just going to present it and then let you make up your own mind, but Michelle Obama was talking to 50 new United States citizens. Now, let, let me make this clear. I truly believe that Michelle Obama, like her husband, despises this country. She carries, to a much greater extent than her husband, a massive racial chip on her shoulder. I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. Well, lady, you're welcome to move out of that house any damn time you want. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of Americans that can't wait to see the U-Haul pull up to the back door next January. And then there was that unforgivable damned comment she made when Obama got the Democrat nomination in Denver. For the first time in my life, I am proud of my country. Throughout all of her years, she had never been proud of the United States, never been proud to be an American until the moment her husband received the nomination to run for president on the Democrat Party. Well, screw you, lady. And I tell you what, I have never liked her even a little bit since that moment. And leave our damn school lunches alone, too. But having said that, Uh, Michelle Obama is talking to these newly naturalized American citizens. And I'll tell you, I think naturalized, and I know a few of them, a few of them are members of my golf club down there in Naples, naturalized American citizens many times beat the snot out of natural-born American citizens. But she said, it's amazing that just a few feet From where I'm standing here are the signatures of the 56 founders who put their names on the declaration that changed the course of history. And like the 50 of you, none of them were born Americans. They became Americans. Now, immediately on the Internet, we uh, started seeing stories about Michelle Obama. Now, here is one. Thomas Jefferson, who not only signed, but wrote the Declaration of Independence, was actually born in Virginia. Other signers of the Declaration, Benjamin Franklin, born in Pennsylvania, John Adams, born in Massachusetts, only eight, only eight of the 56 men, one of whom is a relative of mine, by the way, his name is Arthur Middleton, but only eight of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence were born in other countries. And then these things we see popping up on the internet also say, to make the First Lady's remarks even more embarrassing was her claim that the document was signed in Washington, D.C., when the document was actually signed in Philadelphia. Okay, let's deal with the second part first. 
This is just showing you how fair I can be. Michelle Obama never said that the document was signed in Washington, D.C. She used the phrase, just a few feet from here where I am standing are the signatures of the 56 founders who put their names on the declaration. She didn't say they signed them there. She just said the signatures were there. Where is that? The Library of Congress, Washington, D.C. So this hateful woman is being maligned on that one. But what about the claim that uh, none of the people that signed the declaration were born in America? Technically, technically, she's right. Because, well, I guess it's going to depend on what your definition of America is. Before there was the United States of America, before the declaration was signed, when there were territories, sovereign territories called Massachusetts and Philadelphia and Virginia, did the people back then refer to this country as America? Frankly, I don't know. But if you, if you say that America existed before the declaration was signed, that the colonists living here actually considered those 13 colonies to be America before it became the United States of America, then Michelle Obama's claim is false. If, however, you want to adopt the uh, position that America did not exist until the Constitution was ratified, then Michelle Obama is right. You see, I will step forward and defend even the most despicable people when they are unjustly accused of something, and that is the case, or maybe the case, with Michelle Obama on this particular occasion. But still, the fact remains, she has a gigantic racial chip on her shoulder and is not to be admired in any way because of the fact that she detests this country, just as her husband does. On to the next little issue here. Now, I want to get to Obama trying to censor the shooter's 911 call in Orlando. But before we do that, can we talk about this? I'm sorry, I'm bringing it up again. But this whole gun control thing, the Senate yesterday... The Democrats in the Senate turned down two Republican gun control proposals, and the Republicans in the Senate turned down two Democrat proposals. If you listen to the mainstream media, what you're going to hear is that the Republicans are the bad guys here because the Democrat proposals were more thorough, more comprehensive than the Republican proposals. So the Republicans take all the blame for blocking the Democrat proposals. The Democrats take none of the blame for blocking the Republican proposals. So let me start yammering about this and beg you to add your comments below. Uh, One of the big deals was not allowing people on the terrorist watch list to buy weapons. Now, the first thing I want to say about this entire brouhaha over gun control legislation is that we generally get in trouble in this country when we get into a rush, when we rush through the legislative process to enact new laws 
while we are still in an emotional state over some sort of a crisis, emergency, or event. That happened with the uh, last, what do you want to call it, crash, the Great Recession, whatever, that started in late uh, 2007, really got going in 2008. Well, the Democrats were in a real hurry to make a or to take advantage of this crisis. And the way they wanted to take advantage was to further restrict evil, dangerous economic liberties in this country. Somehow, this economic crisis, the Great Recession, had to be blamed on the free enterprise system. Somehow that had to happen. And so the Democrats were eager, let's make hay while the crisis exists, to take the fight to our financial institutions. Now, if you have half an ounce of sense, if you have studied this entire situation, you would know that the principal cause, the principal cause was something called the Community Redevelopment Act and Congress forcing banks and savings and loan institutions to make home loans to people who simply could not afford to own a home and make the payments on those loans. We had banks, local banks, financial institutions looking at their loan portfolios, and they would know that if they weren't making enough loans to low-income people who had no realistic chance of paying those loans back, they would be investigated by the federal government, possibly fined, possibly prosecuted, or possibly put out of business because the working assumption was that if you did not make loans to poor credit risks, you were discriminating based on race because, by and large, black Americans had poorer credit ratings than did white Americans, Asian Americans, Neapolitan Americans, or what have you. So, these banks made these poor, poor, poor loans. Then, these loans were sold, packaged and sold, to two quasi-government agencies, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, without any real due diligence on the part of these agencies as to whether or not these packages of loans were viable, were actually a good investment for these quasi-government agencies, and on and on. Then what triggered this was these were variable interest rate loans. After five or six years, whatever the term was in the loan papers, the interest rates started to go up. And as soon as the interest rates went up, these marginal people that had no business owning a home that was mortgaged could not make the payments the defaults started happening, and the whole market collapsed. And of course, the Democrats said, it's a crisis, it's a crisis, we have to blame this on Wall Street, our dedicated enemy, Wall Street, we have to make free enterprise the culprit here, so we're going to pass, in haste, in an emergency basis, the Dodd-Frank law. So, there we have it. That was the 
gun control law equivalent for the Great Recession, Dodd-Frank. And since the passage of Dodd-Frank, American economic growth has slowed and American economic liberty has suffered. Every single year since the passage of Dodd-Frank, America has gone down on the economic freedom list. Where are we now? Number 12 or 13, I believe. Do you remember, can you think way back to when you had some wonderful small community banks, maybe in your small town or in your suburb? It used to be back in the 1970s and 80s that my wife and I used to prefer to deal with small community banks where the loan officers and the bank officers knew us and we knew them. Back then, we could go shopping for a new car and foolishly want to finance that car. And all I remember the guy's name. It was Scott Robinson at one of these small banks. We would call him up. Hey, Scott, we're looking at a new van. We're looking to purchase a new van for Neil's hot air ballooning. Uh, can we just write a check for it and then uh, come in tomorrow and sign some loan papers? And Scott would say, sure, yeah, go ahead. Uh, just sign a check and then come in tomorrow and uh, we'll get the paperwork done and get the money into your account. Try that today. Try that today. Because the small community banks, for the most part, don't exist anymore. Why not? The rules and regulations put into place by Dodd-Frank have wiped out the small private community banks in America. I read a story in the Wall Street Journal last year sometime about an American entrepreneur who made his money by forming small community banks across the country. With Dodd-Frank, he shut them all down. They were no longer viable. The rules, the regulations were so onerous that he closed them all. You know what he does now? He opens small community banks in other nations, principally Europe, nations that rank higher on the economic freedom list than does the United States. That was the lesson from the Great Recession of being in a ball-busting hurry to get out there and let's pass a law, let's pass a law, let's show how much we care, let's pass a law. That's what's happening now with gun control and the Orlando shootings. The Democrats know this, folks, know this. The Democrats do not want people to be allowed to own guns in this country. Period. End of story. That lady on the Democrat platform committee appointed by Debbie Wasserman Schultz. God, how hot is she? Anyway, that lady who said, I don't believe people should be allowed to own guns. This is, for the most part, the Democrat position. There are many ways to starkly differentiate between the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, and this is one of them. Republicans believe in the Second Amendment. Democrats do not. In fact, there are some idiot Democrats out there that want Hillary Clinton, if she's elected president, to, quote, abolish the Second Amendment, unquote. 
These people have so little respect for our Constitution, so little respect for due process, so little respect for the rules that were set up for the operation of this country that they believe that a president of the United States can simply decide on his or her own to abolish the Second Amendment. And again, I know this is repetitive, but Democrats, another stark difference, another stark difference. Republicans, and I need to include libertarians here since I'm a member of the Libertarian Party, not a Republican. And in the majority of presidential elections over the last 40 years, I have voted for the Libertarian candidate. The two times I did not were when that asshole Barack Obama was running. This is a generalization. It is not true for everybody. But Democrats believe we, the people, belong to the government of the United States. That wonderful government allows us to work, dictates the terms and conditions under which we are allowed to work, and then dictates how much of the wealth that we produce we are allowed to keep. I know I say this ad nauseum, but this ought to ring in the ears of every American when it's time to cast a vote. The Democrats' official position in the 2012 convention was, we belong to the government. Republicans and libertarians, on the other hand, believe in the sovereignty of the individual, that we belong to ourselves, and that we establish the government, which we own and we operate in order to set up a framework by which we will relate and interrelate with our neighbors and with foreign countries. Democrats are not stupid. They have a goal, and their goal is an overpowering, omnipotent government from which they derive significant power by ordering the lives of all citizens. Democrats are fully aware of that phrase in the Declaration of Independence, paraphrasing it now, that when government, when government becomes abusive, abusive of the freedoms and the rights of the people, it is not only the privilege of the people, but it is their duty, their duty. They are supposed to abolish that government and form a new one that will respect their individuality, their freedoms, and their rights. Democrats know this, and they know that one of the reasons that the Second Amendment exists is so the people can defend themselves against tyrannical government. They know this, they despise it, they hate it, they do not want a citizenry. They do not want people who own guns and who are knowledgeable of the fact that our own documents of our heritage say that the time may come. It may come. It's not here now. The ballot box works. But the time may come when the people have a right to use those guns and those firearms to defend their personal liberties 
and freedoms. So in the Democrat mind, the people must be disarmed. And they will exploit and take advantage of any crisis that will take them one step in that direction. That is why after Sandy Hook, the Democrats immediately started screaming for gun control. Let's get the guns away from the people, piece by piece. We'll take anything. And immediately after Orlando, gun control. Immediately after San Bernardino, gun control. No real attention focused on Islamic jihadist control. It's all about the guns. Now, what about this legislation yesterday? That failed. The principal one there was, let's not let people on the terrorist list buy weapons. Let's not let people on the no-fly list buy weapons. How did that differ from the Republican position? The Republicans said, fine, we will deny to people on the terrorist watch list the freedom to buy a gun, but we will give them due process because there is no due process and our Constitution guarantees due process of law before you can be denied your right to liberty, life, or your property. It guarantees that. It's in the Constitution. So the Republicans said the American people have a constitutional right to due process. There is no due process when somebody is put on the terrorism watch list. They are not given the opportunity to face their accuser, to be heard before a judge, some bureaucrat, somebody in law enforcement, somebody at the FBI, somebody at the State Department just decides this person needs to be on a terrorist watch list. Boom, there they are. And all of a sudden, you can't exercise your Second Amendment rights. So what did the Republicans propose? If an American citizen, somebody on the terrorist watch list, tries to buy a gun and is then denied the right to buy that gun, they will be given the chance to appear before a judge within three days to present their case that they were wrongly placed on a terrorist watch list and should not be denied their due process Second Amendment rights. That's all. That's all the Republicans wanted. Fine, Democrats, fine. We'll stop people on the watch list from buying guns, but we will give them a due process right to appear before a judge and have a judge make a ruling as to whether or not that prohibition is proper or improper. That's all the Republicans wanted. And the Democrats said, no, not going to happen. We are not going to give people their due process rights. If they're on that watch list, they're not going to buy a gun. You know Stephen Hayes? I think it was Stephen Hayes. He's on the Fox News panel every night on Special Report with Brett Baer. He traveled overseas one time, and somebody at the State Department found his travel itinerary to be a little suspicious. So, boom, he ended up on the no-fly list. It took a while for him to get off that list. And during that time, he wouldn't have been allowed to buy a gun. He would have been denied 
his Second Amendment rights without due process of law. Now, Donna and I travel extensively, as you know, and originally, originally, and it all would have gone by the wayside anyway because of her brain injury, but that's another thing. We're coming back from that. Originally, we were going to leave Atlanta and fly to Istanbul. From Istanbul, we were going to go to a resort area on the Mediterranean Sea and stay about a week. Then we were going to get a puddle hopper of some kind, fly over to Italy. We were going to stay in Venice, then Bellagio, then Zermatt, and then go to Basel for a riverboat cruise, leaving or arriving in Amsterdam, leaving Amsterdam, flying back to Atlanta. Well, we're still going to do a lot of that. We'll be going to Lucerne, Switzerland uh, later this summer, then on the riverboat cruise. But I'm telling you, if we had stuck to the original travel schedule and flown from the United States to Turkey and then basically disappeared from view as far as our State Department is concerned in Turkey, in other words, taking a local puddle puddle hopper across to Italy, we probably would have ended up on the no-fly list. Then, of course, there was the big argument over the gun show loophole. How many times do I have to tell you? There is no gun show loophole. It is a complete fabrication by Democrats and those opposed to the Second Amendment. The laws of the United States pertaining to the sale of firearms are exactly, exactly the same at a gun show as they are at any gun shop anywhere in the country. The laws of the United States pertaining to the sale and the transfer of a firearm are exactly the same at a gun show as they are on any street in any neighborhood in any city in this country. There is no loophole. It is a fabrication. The media knows this. But the media is not going to challenge the Democrat Party, not going to embarrass them on this account. Okay, let's get on to something else. And this was repulsive. This was disgusting. They released the 911 phone calls on the shooter in Orlando. But our Justice Department, under orders from Barack Obama, redacted. That means edited out. Our Justice Department redacted in those 911 phone calls any reference, any reference that the shooter made to Islam, that he was a soldier for Allah, that he was doing this for ISIS, so forth. Every reference like that was eliminated by the federal government. Not only does Barack Obama refuse to acknowledge the role of Islamic extremism, of Islamic jihadism, of Islamic terrorism in these attacks in this country, not only does Obama refuse to acknowledge the role of the wonderful peaceful religion of Islam, a word, by the way, that means submission, but he wants to use his power to make sure that even Islamic terrorists are not allowed to blame Islam for their actions, or 
as they see it, to credit Islam for their actions. Thankfully, there was an uproar when the FBI, the Justice Department, released these transcripts, which, with all of the references to Islam removed, the uproar was so loud that they finally had to release these transcripts with the shooter's references to his motivation, that being the wonderful religion of Islam. He was, in short, another murdering muzzy. Obama is perfectly willing to allow American Christians to take the heat for any so-called hate crimes against gays or lesbians or transgendered or sexually confused people. Oh, yeah. You don't bake a cake for a gay wedding, and all of a sudden it's Christianity's fault. But by God, don't you let anybody suggest that Islam might be the fault or involved in the murder of 49 people in Orlando or 14 people at Fort Hood or San Bernardino or elsewhere. I want to play something for you right now. There is a British politician named Paul Weston. He was recently arrested in Great Britain for going up on the steps of a building in London and reciting the words of Winston Churchill. Now, Paul Weston is part of a political party in Great Britain called Liberty GB. I guess that's Liberty Great Britain. On April the 26th of 2014, uh, Paul Weston was arrested in Winchester. At about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he was standing on the steps of the Winchester Guildhall addressing a crowd with a megaphone. And he quoted the following excerpt about Islam from a book, The River War, by Winston Churchill. And here's what Winston Churchill said in that book about Islam. How dreadful are the curses which Mohammedism lays on its votaries. Besides the fanatical frenzy, which is as dangerous in a man as hydrophobia in a dog, there is this fearful, fatalistic apathy. Winston Churchill went on, and Paul Weston was reading this. The fact that in Mohammedan law, every woman must belong to some man as his absolute property, either as a child, a wife, or a concubine, must delay the final extinction of slavery until the faith of Islam has ceased to be a great power among men. But anyway, in today's language, what Winston Churchill said was, Islam is as dangerous in a man as rabies in a dog. Anyway, Paul Weston posted something on the internet, on YouTube recently, just him talking about Islam. Now, you can go on YouTube, enter Paul Weston. You can probably find this statement. If you watch it, you're going to be very troubled because it's some of the most violent footage I've ever seen. Have you ever seen a woman in a burqa being beat into a bloody pulp by Muslim men with sticks and rocks? It's in this video. But probably, thankfully, 
All you're going to hear are the words here. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is Paul Weston. How can you tell when a civilization is in danger of collapse? Well, that's easy. It's when every leader of every country that makes up Western civilization no longer accepts reality and deals only in lies and cowardice when presented with genuine danger. In the midst of worldwide Islamic violence, war, terror, torture and rape, we're told Islam is a religion of peace over and over again. It's a sign of total cowardice to state Islam is peaceful when it is undoubtedly an ideology of supremacism and war. Islam is the Quran, the Quran is Muhammad, and Muhammad was a warlord and a murderer. Now Mecca today is the international shrine to Muhammad, but it didn't used to be. First he had to defeat the Meccans when they laid siege to his exiled home in Medina. Muhammad won the battle and was then involved in the execution by beheading of 700 Jewish male members of Medina's Khurasia tribe. The women and children were taken as slaves and sex slaves, and beheading, as we now know only too well, seems a particular favourite amongst uh, Muslim murderers, and this is because it's instructed in the Quran in any number of verses. Quran 5.33 The punishment of those who wage war against Allah and his messenger is execution by beheading or crucifixion or the cutting off of hands and feet from opposite sides. Quran verse 8.12 I will instill terror into the hearts of the unbelievers, smite ye above their necks and smite all their fingertips off. Nice one. Quran 47.4 Therefore when ye meet the unbelievers, strike off their heads. So you see, Mr Cameron, when Muslim murderers cut off soldiers' heads in London whilst quoting the Quran, it does, contrary to every lie that you've told, have everything to do with Islam. Now, David Cameron seems unaware that the perfect man in Muslims' eyes was a supremacist warlord, a murderer, and a sex enslaver of little girls. But then everything about Islam is supremacist. Islam translated means submission. Come on, what sort of a religion of peace calls itself submission? And what happens if you want to leave this religion of peace? You become an apostate, and the sentence for apostasy is death. So in other words, if you want to leave the religion of peace, you'll be killed. How peaceful is that, Mr Cameron? Can't you see it? This religion of peace, this religion of Islam, kills its own women if they bring dishonour upon a family. Honour killings, honour violence, the stoning to death of adulteresses, the hanging of homosexuals. How can a religion which carries out these acts of savagery and barbarism possibly be considered a part of a peaceful religion. Again, I ask you the question, Mr Cameron. Islam divides the world into two spheres, the area where Islam rules and the area where it does not. Now, the first is called the Dar al-Islam, which means the House of Islam or the House of Submission, and the second is called the Dar al-Harb, which means the House of War. How many peaceful religions call areas they don't control the house of war, Mr Cameron? All Western countries, with large and growing Muslim populations, find themselves, whether they like it or not, in the house of war, which is why, precisely why, our security services are engaged in a constant battle trying to stop the followers of the religion of peace blowing us up on trains, planes and buses. And good old Mohammed. 
He wasn't just a warlord, he was also a rapist and a sex slaver, which is exactly why we see rape and sex slavery happening today, and not just in Syria, but in towns and cities all across the West, wherever there are large numbers of Muslims, notably Malmo in Sweden, which is now the rape capital of Europe, and the Islamic State, ISIS Islamic State, is currently, right now today, selling sex slaves in Syria, as are Boko Haram in Nigeria, and Britain has recently passed a new sex slavery bill in an attempt to halt sex slavery in England, which is yet another aspect of cultural enrichment we are supposed to celebrate that we didn't used to have to do before Islam arrived on our shores. And the reason why modern-day Muslims rape young girls in Western countries is because they don't recognise non-Muslim or infidel laws anyway, but young girls are deemed sexually permissible uh, to Muslims in England because their perfect man, Muhammad, married one of his wives, Aisha, when she was six, and consummated the marriage when she was nine. But you don't consummate a marriage with a nine-year-old girl, you rape her. And the Muslim rape epidemic carried out against non-Muslim underage girls in Britain is specifically down to Muhammad and the Quran. And no doubt the next time such a story breaks in England, when the next Rotherham one comes around, David Cameron will come out and tell us that not only is Islam a religion of peace, it's also a religion of sexual abstinence and purity. Now come on, Mr Cameron, enough of your lies and your cowardice. You really can't deny reality any longer. Islam poses the greatest threat to our civilization we have ever seen. And the history of Islam consists of centuries of war against us, against the West. And today the Muslim population is growing nine times faster than any other demographic in Britain. And demographers are predicting a Muslim majority amongst the young before 2050. What do you think the country will look like then? Do you honestly think we can avoid a civil war when expansionist Islam is so warlike, so intolerant and so supremacist? And the thing is, you know, this could be dealt with today, but to appease it, as you're doing, Mr Cameron, hoping it will eat you last like Winston Churchill's crocodile, is a total betrayal of your country and a total betrayal of our children and grandchildren. You know what he was talking about there? He was talking about Barack Obama and other Western leaders, in the case of Barack Obama, Western rulers, who by God absolutely refuse to recognize and acknowledge the threat to our society, to our civilization from Islam. Now, I've done some research. I've told you before about critical mass. Have I ever actually gone on the Internet to give you a definition of critical mass, I know, I know there are Muslims living in your community. There's Muslims living in mine. Well, why, why aren't they posing a threat? Why aren't they running around killing people? Why aren't they running around demanding Sharia law? Why aren't the Muslims in my community acting like those so-called refugees, those Muslim migrants in Europe, going out on the streets and just finding a woman dressed in a way they think is inappropriate and slapping the dog Obama out of them? Why isn't that happening in my community? It comes down to critical mass. It is a violent religion. But in your community, in your state, in your city, they just might not have the numbers yet that allows them to act out the way they would like 
to act out in the name of their religion? The answer, critical mass. They're just not at critical mass yet. What is critical mass? In physics, reading the definitions now, the minimum amount of fissile material needed to maintain a nuclear chain reaction. But here's another definition, quote, the minimum size or amount of something required to start or maintain a venture. The off-stated goal of Islam is world domination. The entire world must be under the control of Islam. That is a venture, okay? But in your community, in your state, in your city, in countries around the world where there are not enough Muslims required to start or maintain this venture, you have not yet reached critical mass, the minimum number of Muslims you need. But as these populations grow, and oh, do these Muslims love to brag about how fast they're having babies. And of course, you have Obama inviting tens of thousands of them to come into this country with minimal vetting as the numbers grow. Again, in your community, your city, your state, sooner or later, that minimum number, that minimum number of Muslims you need to start or maintain this venture of domination in your community, eventually the world, sooner or later that number gets reached. That is when you reach critical mass. So just ask yourself, in my community, with all of the mosques and all of these apparently peace-loving Muslims, what happens when their numbers increase to the point that they believe they can then initiate or maintain a venture of bringing about Sharia law, of controlling the electoral process, of putting people into elective office. What happens when that critical mass is reached in your neighborhood and they're on the way? Okay, is 46 minutes enough for you today? I hope so. I need to get back to the hospital where my darling, my sweetie, my queen is. So as always, take care, God bless you, and thank you so much for subscribing. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.